0: Have you ever read the Bible from cover to cover? No worries. I'm not testing you this morning, but rather, this was an opening line we learned at our personal evangelism course at seminary. So, hey Joe, have you ever read the Bible from cover to cover? And then Joe answers, No, I haven't. Well. That's not a problem at all, because there's one verse that summarizes it all, and that is John 3.16. And so then we would share John 3.16. And so indeed, if you know only John 3.16, you kind of read the Bible from cover to cover, at least with regard to salvation. Now there's another way to answer that question. And then need to read the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. The beginning and the end. The first creation and the new creation. And if you add one more chapter to it, Genesis chapter 3, you know what the problem is. And then all the rest in between is just to get from A to B. And indeed, you have read the Bible from cover to cover. And so if somebody asks you, you can with confidence answer this question, yes I do. I do it every morning before breakfast. (laughs) Now it has been long recognized, even starting with the church fathers, that there is a correspondence between the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible. Between the first creation and the new creation. And some have even been saying that if you want to know how it ends, you only need to know how it starts. Or the other way, if you know how it starts, you can kind of project the end. But is it really that obvious when we are reading these four chapters to see this correspondence, correspondence? Is really the scenarios are that similar? Well, let's briefly review these four chapters. And I'm pretty sure most of you are well, very familiar with these. So in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world, the universe, the earth out of chaos. And over a period of six days, in ten acts, he assigns purpose and structure, function and functionaries, to creation. And on the sixth day he creates the animals and human beings whom assigns a special position as his vice regents in this creation. Then in Genesis chapter 2 everything focuses on a garden. God creates a wonderful garden and puts in the human beings to work and protect it. Well then if we jump forward to Revelation 21 there John sees in his vision a new creation coming down from heaven. And this new creation looks like a city. And in pretty much detail describes how this city looks like. And then he also says, even though there is no temple, but somehow God and the lamp are the temple. And then he sees a river flowing from the throne, and on the riverbanks there are trees. But yeah, if you look at these two scenarios, at first glance, there's not much in common except maybe the river and the trees. But where is the correspondence? Well, these um, church fathers and and, and scholars and and Bible interpreters, they are helping us by uh, seeing the correspondence by looking a little bit deeper, namely asking the question, what themes do we see in both accounts. And when you do this we see well in Genesis 1, God creates kind of a kingdom and, and maybe a, a covert, an implied kingdom, and assigns human beings to be the vice regions. While in Revelation we see that God's and the Lamb sits on the throne and is reigning. Then when we ask, well what about the presence of God? Well God is present in Genesis 1 in Genesis chapter 2 in Genesis 1 maybe more as a transcendent God but in Genesis 2 pretty much close to people well then when you look at Revelation we see that as well God is very much present there Genesis 1 describes the creation in a way a temple is being built and then inaugurated so his universe is a temple kingdom, a temple universe. And then Genesis chapter 2, it focuses on one part of that, the Garden of Eden. Eden is not the garden itself, but Eden is an implied mountain where God dwells. So the Holy of Holies, and then the garden is the holy area, and then outside is the untamed nature. And in Revelation 21-22, we see, well, there is also, of course, a temple. And human beings assigned in Genesis chapter 2 to serve as priests, well, they pretty much serve as priests in Revelation. So yeah, this makes it much more clear that there is a correspondence. But I suggest to you that there is an asymmetry in this correspondence. That the new creation transcends the first creation. But the new creation is an escalated first creation. For instance, I already mentioned that Genesis 1 is more than an implied kingdom. But then we look at Revelation 22. It's an overt kingdom. God sits on the throne and reigns. Human beings are assigned to be God's wise regents in Genesis chapter 1. But then in Revelation 22 it actually says the believers are reigning forever and ever. In Genesis chapter 2, God is, of course, present in the garden, but still he has his kind of own area, namely that mountain, and then human beings are in the garden, and then outside is the untamed wilderness. But in Revelation 21-22, there is no separation anymore between God and humans. And the New Jerusalem is described as a cube that looks like the Holy of Holies. And there, God and humans are dwelling together. Human beings are assigned to be priests in the garden to protect the garden from intrusion and to work and to keep it and so on. But in Revelation, they have all the mark, the name of the Lord, on their forehead, which is nothing else as being high priests. So before they were assigned to be priests, but now everybody is a high priest. And we can continue this. There is, in the first creation, is the tree of life. But then in Revelation, people actually eat from the tree of life. In the garden, there is the river watering the garden. While in Revelation, there is also a river that not only waters the garden and trees, but people drink from it. For eternal life. There is a couple in the garden, the man and the woman, while there's also a couple in Revelation. It is Christ and his bride, the church. So it is an escalated first creation. And that, of course, has implications, as I suggest to you. Because our outlook as Christians is forward-looking. We are not primarily looking back, but we are looking forward, and that has also implications for Bible interpretation, as I will show in an example a little bit later. Now these themes that I just mentioned, they are not just in the first two chapters, in the last two chapters, but we can find them all over the place. Maybe you remember two weeks ago, I talked about Abraham, an episode from Abraham's life, and the events at the court in Gerar, and there we located quite a bit of these themes. You find them all over, and you can trace them from the beginning to the end. So you could say, okay, I want to do a study on the theme kingdom, and then just go through the divisions of the Bible. The books of Moses, the historical books, the prophets, Poetical books, Gospels, Letters, Revelation. And then start all over again with the presence of God. And then just do the same thing over and over again. Well, I'm suggesting to you that as we are doing this, tracing all these themes, we notice that these themes do not run in a way like lanes of a highway run. They do not run parallel throughout Scripture. But rather, I suggest to you that they converge at some point, in a point. That they converge in a person. And you all know who that person is. That is Jesus Christ. And I'm not telling you anything new that Scripture is through and through Christ-centered. However, what I'm suggesting is that we sometimes underestimate or not estimate enough what that means. Because usually when we talk about that Scripture is Christ-centered, we think of fulfillment. So for instance, while Christ fulfilled all, all these promises, these prophecies and these things like this from the Old Testament in his person. Or in the Gospels we read either that the Gospel writers themselves say this happened in order that this is being fulfilled or that Jesus is saying these things had to happen, for instance, that I'm going to suffer and then and, and rise again in according to the scriptures to fulfill the law and the prophets, to fulfill the law, the prophets and Psalms and things like this. But it goes one step further, namely that. Christ not only fulfills all these things from Scripture, but he actually embodies Scripture. When in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that, of course, refers to Christ. He's saying, Christ is the Word, and Most likely he means he is the Torah, the instruction from the Old Testament. He embodies the Old Testament. So Jesus is not just fulfilling it, but actually embodies it. And the interesting thing is, if we are tracing these themes, we also notice that he embodies all these themes. And the way he realizes these themes in his life are actually quite paradoxical. So for instance, he's the king and he proclaims the kingdom. And through his life, people can see how the kingdom looks like. But his incarnation as king is actually that of a criminal. And the king dies on the cross. And only through his death and resurrection, this kingdom is inaugurated. In the Gospel of John, in the f- chapter 1, it says that that he was the light and, and he dwelt among us. I mean that God that dwelt among us. I mean that Jesus is God and in him the presence of God was visible and touchable as, as never before. And yet, in his lifetime, many people of his generation and his nation didn't recognize it. Jesus says of himself that he's the temple. And yet, his body, his temple, needs to be destroyed only to, and, and rise again only to make this temple actually fully functioning. He speaks of himself, or he acts, maybe more precise, as a priest, as a high priest. And yet, he's not sacrificing something or some animal, he's sacrificing himself. And so we can see this over and over again in all these themes. So that indeed, Scripture is totally Christ-centered. Not only fulfilling everything, but also embodying it. And that, I believe, has massive implications of how we read Scripture. Because we can read Scripture only through the lens or the prism of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, that's where that's the thing that's coming in, what I mentioned a bit earlier, with the end in mind reading scripture through the lens of Christ looking forward not looking backward now i'm thinking okay michael well this is all good information and but how does this relate to my life how does this help me to to be a, to grow in my faith to be a better disciple of Christ to understand scripture better to be just a better testimony, and also find, kind of navig- navigate my life in our secular world. Well, I want to give you a few examples, particularly with you through the Old Testament, because I believe if we take some examples from the Old Testament, it becomes very, very clear what I'm talking about. So maybe we start with a few simple examples from regard to personal say, ethics and personal holiness. So, for instance, um, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 23, verse 1 to 8, it says, Do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit." If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the righteous. So that is an example of the personal ethics and morals from the Old Testament. The other example I want to use and then compare the two is the system of clean and unclean. And you're all familiar with that. That's in Leviticus. I'm not reading it because, well, there are millions of chapters talking about it. But the basic idea is this, that certain things render people ceremonial, unclean, and these are things that are kind of everyday occurrences, natural things that happen. Um, Body fluids, body excrements, blood, being in a house where a person died, touching a dead person, certain foods, mildew in the house, things like this. Alright, so I'm going to ask a question. We have these two sets of principles or laws from the Old Testament, which ones still apply for a Christian? Well, I suggest we position ourselves looking one way to the Old Testament through the prism, through the lens of Jesus Christ, and see how each of these sets appears, how they look like, in what light do they shine. And I think the answer is very simple. So with the first one, with the personal... Ethics and the things you know at court, or, or helping your enemies, ox. Well, we maybe not have an ox anymore, but maybe a car is running away or something. It becomes pretty obvious that this still applies in our life, because after all, Jesus in in the book of Matthew several times pointed out how he summarizes the law. So in Matthew. Chapter 22, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And so the answer is pretty simple, right? Now, I wouldn't say that these are laws that apply, but rather examples of how to apply Jesus summarizing the law in your personal life. Now what about clean and unclean? Do we still follow or need to follow these rules? Well, again, you know, if we look through the prison of Jesus Christ, then we see that we no longer need to follow these no longer apply and there's a very simple reason for it the clean and unclean system carries the idea that when that was the case in the Old Testament with the Israelites when God came down at Mount Sinai into the tabernacle and dwelt among them so when an absolutely holy God who is pure life dwells among mortal people Things that move people away from life to death are a problem and render people ceremonial unclean. It's not sin, but it just our mortal bodies and mortal life does things that make it um they make it they go turn it into a problem to live close to a holy God. So when your blood represents life, so losing your blood moves away from life to death or things like this. And so they had this whole system that reminded them, we are mortals, but the Holy God lives among us. Well, when we look through the life and death of resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see that this changed. Because through our faith in Jesus Christ, we become saints. We are sanctified. The Holy Spirit indwells us. So God indwells us. And we have become clean. And so these things no longer apply. We have communion with God, regardless of what our mortal bodies are doing. And so each time when we look into the Old Testament, we can ask these questions. Another simple thing would be, and I'm not doing here, any specific example, say leadership principles. Okay, so we're saying, okay, we study Moses and David and, for instance, Nehemiah to learn how to be a leader, to learn from them how, you know, some leadership principles. So even if we come up with good principles, we still need to funnel them through Jesus Christ and see how they appear in the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, whether they still hold to be good principles. Okay, so these were more see, examples of a more simple nature. So I want to here change gears a little bit and make it a bit more challenging. So what about things that are not specifically mentioned in the Old Testament? Where there's no specific law where you can you know, go through the pages. Aha, here is a verse that says exactly this. And so this is an example of, of Jesus summarizing the law. Particularly when these are things that just pertain maybe to us individually but are a societal issue, a societal ill, maybe a structural ill. What about these things? So what I'm thinking of is issues like racism, intimate partner violence, sexual abuse and harassment. They're not necessarily specifically mentioned in the Old Testament law. So how to deal with that? Well, I'm bringing up this example specifically because that's my personal opinion, and maybe you disagree, and that's completely fine. But my personal opinion is that among conservative Christians evangelical Christians, we tend to be soft on these issues. We all agree, you know, this, of course, these things are bad things, and we shouldn't do any of these. But is really sin? Is it really sin that needs to be addressed and dealt with? Well, to answer this question, and I, and I admit, you know, we have a limited of time, and there are probably lots of things to be, to be said about, is again, to look to the Old Testament through the prism of Jesus Christ. And what he said about Not specifically of the issues, but coming back to the verses I already mentioned, namely summarizing the law. Love God and your neighbors yourself, and only do things to people you want that people do to yourself, or to your loved ones. And so then I think the answer becomes pretty clear. Particularly, we remember that when Jesus talks about who is your neighbor, he doesn't mean your best friend whom you know since kindergarten. Your neighbor could be anyone. It could be someone you know or it could be someone you don't know. It could be someone who looks like you or someone who doesn't look like you. It could be someone who has the same religion or faith as you or someone who doesn't. And it also includes our spouses. I think that's sometimes forgotten. That spouses are also our neighbors. And so then when we ask ourselves some questions, for instance, do you do you want to be treated because of the way you look or the, the religion you have? Do you want to say that you only can enter the movie theater through the back door, whereas everybody else can use the front door? Or do you want to sit only in the back of a bus, whereas everybody else can pick any they choose. And then when you answer the question with no, and then of course you should ask, well, should anybody else experience this? And the same thing we can ask, of course, with partner violence and then sexual abuse and harassment. Well, do you want that your wife or your daughter is inappropriately touched? Well, why is it okay for somebody else, spouse, a wife or, or, or daughter to be touched? Or do you want that your child is taken away and put into a boarding school where it's coming back years later completely traumatized? Well, if you don't want that, why should somebody else's? <clears throat> now, you might be thinking I'm pretty harsh, but we all know that, for instance... The things that happened in the Catholic Church are not just devastating for everyone who experienced it and for the Catholic Church itself, but it falls back on all the Christians. When these things and, and to be sure, you know, if you if you <laughs> openly contradict what Jesus is saying when he's summarising the law, well this is breaking the law and breaking the law is simply sin. It's nothing else. It's just sin. If we don't address it, it comes back to haunt us. And if you're still maybe in doubt, well, you only need to go online and and research a little bit about the Southern Baptist Convention. They had their reckoning this year with regard to sexual abuse in their church um, denomination, and it is completely of their own doing. Of course, I already have here raised a little bit the stakes because there is a third commandment from Jesus, right? Love one another as I have loved you. So if you think, not just in a general context with anyone, but within the church community, within us as brothers and sisters, and not just, I mean, our, but say all the denominations who call themselves Christians, and these things happen, well, this is nothing else then. Devastating. And it is sin, and it's nothing else, and needs to be addressed and dealt with. All right, so after we covered these topics in five or ten minutes, <laughs> I want to close with one maybe less, um, but well, who knows? Maybe it's even more challenging topic because I want to come back to a more personal level, to a personal life decision regarding marriage or singleness. So the question is, for instance, should every Christian be married and have children? Well, in the Old Testament, when we look into the Old Testament, basically nobody was unmarried. And nobody, there was basically nobody who didn't want to have children. Rather, usually the opposite problem thing was the problem, right? People wanted to have children and, and didn't have them. And so we find here verses, for instance, like Psalm uh, 127, verses to 5. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Or Proverbs 17 verse 6. Children's children are a crown to the aged and parents ...are the pride of their children. And I know that some... ...there are some script, uh, Christian writing that use these verses... ...to advance the idea that... ...Christians should be married and have children. Particularly, of course, women should be married and have children. Now, when you look into the Old Testament... ...this is in line with Israel's calling... The blessing to multiply and fill from the first humans, or from Genesis one, that went to Noah, went to Abraham and then to Israel. And their calling was to dwell in the land, in the physical land, and live their lives as a testimony to the surrounding nations. And part of the testimony, of course, was to be to procreate and, and thrive and be a light. And also, of course, to enjoy the promises of God. And part of it was the land promise that they got as a gift from God. That's why, you know, remember that with Ahab and the vineyard and, and Naboth, that he, Naboth couldn't sell his vineyard. Not that he, whether he wanted it or not, because that was his inheritance from the Lord. So that would be denying God. So yeah, in the Old Testament, that was part of the calling. Yet when we look through the prisoner of Jesus Christ, what do we see? Well, we see that the kingdom of God takes the highest priority. the ministry, the advancement, advancement, the proclamation of the kingdom of God takes highest priority, and that changes things. That changes their priorities. So that marriage and singleness are then more a question of how do they fit in my life, being part of the unfolding kingdom of God, knowing that it is also my part to advance the kingdom. And for some people, family and children just fits right into that. And for others, It doesn't. For instance, the Apostle Paul. As far as we know, he wasn't married. And as far as we know, he didn't therefore had any physical children. But was he really childless? Well, I suggest that he had lots and lots of children. Spiritual children. After all, we are all spiritual children of God as we are called into his community. And so, it can be completely legitimate to live a single life and never have children and focusing on the kingdom of God. What some missionaries do and other people. Some time ago in in our council, uh, we discussed the question of how to How to commemorate or celebrate Father's and Mother's Day. And we came to the conclusion that we want to give a a gift not just to actual physical parents, but actually to all. To all men on Father's Day, to all women on Mother's Day. Because we are not just, as we are called into the community, we are not just physical parents, but we also are spiritual parents as we minister to each other well i know we could go on and on and uh, some of the issues are just raised here briefly because after all a sermon is usually um, kind of a contained <laughs> a contained thing but i but i wanted to use these two sermons well first one well, first of all to share with you how I spend my time when I read the scriptures and what I'm wrestling with, because after all, you know, I'm your I'm your elder, I'm actually your your, your lead elder. So I thought, you know, I should have a right to know what kind, what things I'm doing when I'm studying the Bible and what I'm spending my time with. Well, and second, that's you no know, away from me. I want to encourage you to wrestle with scripture, and not just stay on the surface, but rather wrestle with it and see and go deeper and read and go deeper and see. How scripture transforms, when we look in that way, how that transforms our life, particularly also helps us to navigate through a world that becomes less and less Christian. How to navigate through a world where many things are blurred in a way as we see in today's society. Well, I want to close this this sermon with with prayer and I want to pray that we really soak scripture in. So that just as Jesus is the embodiment of scripture, that kind of scripture becomes a, a, a natural part of us. That it just comes out of us without even really thinking about that. Just be so immersed in it that it becomes a way of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for all for all these things that are written in Scripture, whether it is a, a teaching or whether it's events or I just want to thank you for that, for this richness and the deepness of things and thoughts that are in there. And I pray that you give us this hunger to read scripture, to to really immerse in it so that we not just read it and understand it with our minds, but rather live it out. And that it helps us to live a life that is worthy to you, a life that advances the kingdom of God, a life that is a testimony to this broken world. And that through that we can bless, not only us individually, corporately as a church, but bless the world who is in such need of your redemption. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.